This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed. One major league soccer owner is leading a $50 million investment. The blurring of the lines between sports team owners and the sports gambling space. Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Evan Novi williams Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier. And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. Heidi O'Neill is president of direct-to-consumer at Nike. Then the race car driver, Elio Castro. Jared Smith, president of Ticketmaster. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Evan Novi-Williams. I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. We explore the big money issues in the world of sports, and there are a lot of them, Evan Novi-Williams, even in a world of no sports. Absolutely, Jason. Today, you know, let's start with some potentially explosive developments right now. Past few days in the ongoing lawsuit, counter lawsuit between Zion Williamson, NBA star, and Gina Ford, his one-time marketing executive. Uh, The big news coming out in the past few days, Ford and her legal team have asked Zion Williamson, they're called requests for admission, essentially asked him to confirm, admit that he was aware that his mother and stepfather requested for and received money and gifts, impermissible benefits from a whole host of people here. Nike, Adidas, representatives of Duke University, where Zion played for one year, other agents, etc. The uh, The reason she's doing this is that Zion is essentially claiming that their contract is null and void because it didn't include the proper warnings about you know him losing his eligibility should he sign it. Her argument now, it seems like, is you were already academic, you were already ineligible yeah. because of all this other stuff that your family was doing. But I want to talk about it, I think, maybe a little more broadly. You know, this is hardly the first major college basketball star with allegations swirling around him and his family about taking money from shoe companies and schools. He is probably the biggest, I mean, was probably the biggest college basketball star of the past two decades. Jason, what am I to think of this? Is, is Who's the bad person here? Is there a bad person here? What's broken? What needs fixing? How do we unpack all this? All right. So I was reading in on this this morning, and I was chatting with an expert in the field, my 17-year-old, <laughs> and as I was making my coffee. And he actually said something really smart, I think, which is... This is less about Zion. This is more about Duke and college basketball in many ways. Mm. And I think the institution of Duke and the institution of college basketball have more to be worried about at this point. And, of course, this comes at a time when we've got some big existential questions as to what college athletes' relationship to money and marketing and their likeness is. I think this is a huge story, and I think the the losers, as it were, are less Zion because, as you say – this has sort of been out and about in some ways, but if he basically says, yep, did it, it happened, it happened with Duke, maybe it happened, and there's some testimony, it, it seems like, that implicates at least some conversations with Kansas as well, and the shoe companies and all that, I mean, this is some of the most potent evidence I think we've seen at how dirty this system is. Am I going too far, Mike? No, I think you're right. Uh, but I, as you said, it's not the first time at all. I'm, what I'm confused about here is that Gina Ford and Prime Sports were not certified by the NBA and not certified to represent anybody in the state of North Carolina. Now, when you have a compliance officer at a university like Duke, this isn't a football team where you've got maybe 75 or 80 guys. You've got 12 kids on the team, and you get your biggest star on there. And I would think that they would just be every single day just trying to make sure he's clean, 
that he's not uh, contaminated by people who shouldn't be around him. And uh, I think this reflects uh, badly on Duke. I think the temptation is too great for a 17-year-old to have all kinds of money and sneaker contracts and shoe deals waved in front of him. Now, if he comes out and says, yeah, my mother and my stepdad were receiving things, uh, shame on him, shame on Duke. So, you know, I think we kind of all agree that that in some ways this system is broken and and people have acted probably wrongly, if not Zion himself and his family, then certainly others before him. Uh, I'm not sure if anything is going to change here. Yeah. You know, we've seen these allegations so many times the number of schools that are probably violating NCA rules in terms of recruiting is probably much, much longer than even skeptics might think it is. Um, you know, I, I agree with you guys both. You know, Duke has this ivory tower reputation. Uh, it, it has never kind of directly been sullied in in a major NCAA investigation. And, and we should say, you know, Duke last year when, when, when Michael Avenatti named Zion Williamson, they spent five months looking into his... Uh, into his eligibility and came back and said that they found nothing uh, that right. was not on the on the up and up. Um, but you know, I, there, there's fatigue I think among sports fans out there about you know these kinds of, of violations. You know, Reggie Bush, Terrell Pryor, even way before them. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and I do wonder if you know if, if people actually are going to care. And even if it comes out, and I don't think Zion is going to respond right. to these allegations anytime soon. But if it does eventually come out with cold hard proof that he took money, I'm not even convinced that that people are going to judge Duke that harshly <laughs> uh, as a result of it. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being too cynical here. Well, because didn't we see this to some extent? I mean, we saw this with Cam Newton back in the day, right? I mean, th- yes. this was an issue um, at Auburn, and I mean, we've seen how that program is gone on and you can say what you want about Cam Newton's performance um, in the NFL of late but certainly it didn't hinder his uh, ascent it didn't knock off any sponsorships that that he ultimately got I guess one of my questions and, and Eben maybe this is a good one for you is synthesizing this with this new approach that the NCAA is taking towards student athletes and their likenesses how does this play into that broader narrative do you think I mean, it plays in in a, in a bit in that you know Zion Williamson is probably the the poster child for for the maximum amount of money that a college athlete right. can make in marketing when you're when you're in college. You know, he was the most famous college athlete by far uh, for the for the few months that he was playing at Duke. Um, do do I think that you know in, in that world where he can make money at Duke by himself? Do I think that that automatically eliminates any potential payment that I don't think that's going to change, you know, yeah. agents that are trying to get their hands on these people. It's not certainly not going to change, you know, the, the amount by which Nike and Adidas want these guys to go to schools that they sponsor, right. Which is, which is a, a huge one. Uh, so I don't think it cleans up at all. And, and I think that's the argument and Mike, we'll let you have the, the final word on this one. Um, but I think that's kind of the argument for maybe blowing up this entire system is that in general payments are always better when they happen in the light as opposed to in the dark. And if it's happening already, why not make it much, much easier, much better beyond name, image, and likeness? Why not make it an above-board process for these guys to get part of their worth? Well, I told you a couple weeks ago I was sort of opposed to this because they're getting a $300,000 education for free. So basically they're, it's like handing them a $300,000 check as opposed to a regular student who has to pay uh, full tuition. Uh, but this has been going on for, you know, for a long, long time, uh, for 50, 60, 70 years, uh, and it just uh, the, 
seems to grow bigger and bigger. I think of uh, Marcus Canby uh, receiving a gold necklace from an agent, and uh, UMass had to vacate their Final Four appearance back in, yeah. in 1992. So uh, you know that this this new effect by the uh, uh, this new move by the NCAA is supposed to come into effect in January, I believe, where they they can compensate the players. I've I've been against it, but the more I see of these things happening in the darkness, you're right. Shine a light on it. Let's come up front and say, okay. My only problem is, you know, some kids driving around college campus in a Lamborghini with hundred dollar bills in his pocket, and um, he's just it's just just wrong for me. I just uh, maybe I'm old school. Guys, let's move on. Let's talk uh, maybe a, a little brighter topic. Sports are back in some capacity. Over the weekend, UFC held event 249 down in Jacksonville. 11 fights. It was supposed to be 12. One fighter, Ronaldo Souza, tested positive for COVID-19 in the run-up to the event. Uh, his event was obviously scrapped. He did not fight. Um, Jason, did you watch this event? No fans in the arena, obviously. It was a return to sports. It looked and sounded maybe a little different than yeah. most UFC fights, but you know, did this scratch an itch that you felt you were feeling about live sports? So full confession, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I have been watching uh, highlights uh, since then. It is... A- it, it's one of these moments I feel like where you're looking at it and you're like, it's almost there. Like, you know, th- there are certain elements about it. And part of it, you and I were talking before we started the show about the fact that the way the UFC is staged, right? You know, like all light on the octagon and mm. darkness in the audience. Like that plays to this certain element. But we also know, all of us on this podcast know that UFC fans are rabid and these events are just so high energy uh, in a lot of ways. And so you could definitely sense that wasn't there, even though there were people in the front couple rows, broadcasters and staff and things like that. And then, of course, a lot of them were wearing masks. And so... It felt a little bit strange, and yet I have to say, and I'm not a huge UFC fan to start, but it was good to see some live sports. I mean, just sort of people getting out there, and by all accounts, you know, they they had the the one fighter test positive, as you say, he didn't fight, and the rest of it, I think, went relatively smoothly. Yeah, it did go smoothly. That one fighter had to go home, um, and a lot of these athletes, as we know, are unlike other professional athletes. They if they don't perform, they don't compete. They don't get paid. Right. So it's sort of, it reminds me of that image in Animal House. Remember when there was the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder? <laughs> <laughs> so so there's, a, there's, a, there's a sack of cash on one shoulder, and then there's the image of COVID-19 on the other shoulder. Yeah. And it's sort of this risk-reward. Do I want to jump in and engage in a physical activity here? Uh, now knowing that at least one person and two uh, people in his corner tested positive for COVID-19, do I want to continue in doing this, or do I want to just compete on this, um, uh, this event and just get out of Dodge with my health? Two things I, I want to highlight here. One, you know, as everyone talks about other sports reopening, there's kind of this, you know, sentence that gets said all the time. Hey, if someone tests positive, everything has to shut down. You know, the, the Taiwanese Baseball League, when they restarted, they said exactly that. One, one person in this ecosystem tests positive, we take two weeks off. UFC, you know, different than team sports in some ways, but at least kind of provided a counter narrative to that. Yes. In that someone in this, in Jacksonville at their hotel, Tested positive. They were doing a lot of tests. They, they figured out it was him and, and two of his corner members. They did not cancel the event. They fully quarantined those people. They continued on without it in the, you know, in the, in the next couple of weeks. We may see, you know, whether that was a great decision or, or a potentially terrible one. 
but at least you know for 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 the first time i think we heard a heard and saw a a sports entity that said you know what one person testing positive you know on the eve of a competition doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to grind to a halt and then one other one that i want to get your guys thoughts on you know our colleague josh adelson this weekend got his hands on the waiver that these athletes were asked to sign before going down to Jacksonville. Uh, some highlights, you know, the UFC essentially told them they had to agree to that, you know, hospitals might not be able to treat them. They had to essentially make UFC free of all claims of negligence. They couldn't speak publicly, disparaging UFC's safety protocols. The big one to me that seems, I mean, I don't know how you can possibly, you know, guarantee this. The fighters had to guarantee that for four weeks after the fight, a month after the fight, they were not going to come in contact with anyone with, quote, underlying health issues, end quote, yeah. uh, which seems like such a difficult thing to guarantee um i'm not a a legal waiver expert obviously i have no idea how onerous you know this contract is relative to what other sports are going to come back with but jason i think no matter what sport it is the waiver that these guys are going to sign or the collective bargaining that's going to have to happen with unions which ufc doesn't have uh it's going to have to be you know pretty heavily tilted towards conversations like this which is when something goes wrong Who's at fault? What are you right. voluntarily, you know, signing yourself up for? And I think that's a huge issue. I mean, I think about regular rank and file non-professional athlete employees and the choices that we're all going to have to make with our mm. individual companies as consumers, all these different things. I mean, I think we're entering into this world and as often as the case, sports is such a great microcosm of it where we are going to be weighing Risk and reward, risk and reward all the time. And that's it's exactly what Mike said a few minutes ago about, you know, the the devils, the devil and angel on the shoulders. I think you can make an argument that everyone, including right up to the president of the United States, is thinking about those two things. And in some cases, it's sort of health and economy. And that's the debate that we're in. That's the debate we're going to be in uh, for a long time to come. I I do want to go back briefly, though, to your first point, which is I do think it's really important that they went on after they had the positive test because even, you know, last week when we were talking about the the sort of rejiggered Premier Lacrosse League, you know, which uh, shout out to the Boston area, Mike, was supposed to open at Gillette in in just a couple weeks, as you know – they, you know, they're sort of, I think, leaning toward this. If somebody tests positive, we've got to sort of ratchet the the whole thing back. I do wonder if that sentiment uh, changes a little bit. I think that's a really big question, Mike. Let me let me ask you this. Uh, so there were twelve hundred tests available for three hundred people down there in Jacksonville. And if you're one of these people that's sitting in a long line in a parking lot and you're having a trouble getting tested, yeah. aren't you a little bit miffed that you know twelve hundred test kits were available, you know, for a UFC fight uh, weekend down in Jacksonville, and you're sitting in a in a parking lot at Costco waiting to get your nose swabbed to find out, you know, if you can go back home to your to your wife and your kids, and and, and or or you're going to be a, a, quarantine and have to go to the hospital that would i don't i think i think that 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 would miff a lot of people 
Yeah, we had these conversations, you know, back in you know mid March when you know when Rudy Gobert tested positive, and, and it came yeah. out that the entire Nets team had had been tested, and then you know uh, there was pretty rampant testing kind of across the NBA. Um, and I and I I'm not an expert in this by any means, but my guess, and Jason, you may actually know better, but that you know un- unfortunately just the the ways our, the capitalist society runs, if yeah. you have the money and the access and the contacts, you are able to secure the things that you know the people that don't have those three things uh, cannot. Well, there's economics and there's optics, right? And I think what what Mike is getting to is a really important point, which is even as the leagues go to uh, a a pretty extreme extent to prove that they're not taking tests away from anybody. I read something over the weekend that said, I believe the Orlando Magic essentially had to, like they went out of their way to say, if we're going to test all of our players and staff and, and personnel, we want to make sure we're not taking tests away from anybody in the Orlando area. So you may see teams going to great lengths to prove that. Paul Rabel at the PLL mentioned that they were sourcing their tests in a way that they were assured by the WHO up to the White House that they weren't going to be taking tests from anybody. And yet, and yet, Mike, I think your point is a really good one that that can all get sort of lost in the shuffle, as you say, if you're chilling in your car at a Costco parking lot and you know that, you know, the, the Greek freak is getting his test done every week. I, I'd be I'd be pretty miffed if, if I if, if I was sitting there uncertain with with all kinds of all kinds of symptoms and these guys are getting tested uh, anytime they feel like it. Guys, let's talk about a different type of testing now for our third topic. Uh, Major League Baseball, a couple about a month ago, I believe, uh, said it had agreed to participate willingly in a, in a in a more broad Stanford University study about antibodies. So the test that tells you not if you currently have the virus, but if you have had it uh, in the past. The results of that are back. You know, uh, about 5,700 people around Major League Baseball were tested for antibodies. You know, that includes team employees, that includes family members of players, that includes a few players, that includes staff, etc. Um, the numbers, you know, according to the science, the Stanford scientist who did it, you know, he was expecting a larger number of, of positive antibody tests than came back. I think the final number was 0.7% yeah. of the Major League Baseball uh, ecosystem. You know, that that's a lot lower than, than numbers we've seen in, 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 in studies in counties in California. For example, Jason, I'm curious when when you read numbers like that, is that just kind of interesting? Is there anything you kind of take away from that? I guess specifically about maybe the possibility of baseball returning soon. So on the one hand, you think, oh, okay, well, maybe this is good news. Like there's a way to sort of squint and turn it into good news, I think. But in general, I look at it from the perspective, from the broader perspective of the country and the workforce and things like that. And I think we've all we've all been hoping to some extent that many more of us were exposed than maybe we thought. Maybe even some of us were sick and, you know, thought it was just the sniffles or whatever it is. It was a bad cold or a flu or whatever it was. But I think seeing that number come back, and again, it's not definitive, but it is a pretty big sample set. And one of the things I read rightly pointed out that this is also a very specific population when you Mm. get down to it, you know, that it's overwhelmingly white, it's very male, um, it's affluent, and so that has to, to figure in as well. And and so I take that into account. I personally am really skeptical, I guess, 
about baseball at large scale coming back and playing in their home stadiums. I mean, I know that people would love to, you know, see a game, even if there are no fans there uh, at Fenway, Mike, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. This didn't give me maybe the confidence that I think Major League Baseball was looking for. Well, I have a couple of questions about this. Why did four teams refuse to participate? The Cubs, the Reds, the Rockies, and the Marlins. They said no. Number two, it's an at-home test that the players and family members were tested as well. You, you do a pinprick on your uh, on your finger yourself, and you put it on a pad, and you take a picture of it. And some of them came back so blurry they couldn't be they couldn't be read uh, properly. So uh, there's no one really in the medical community that that's that's uh, reading these tests mm. or making a diag- diagnosis. I I don't I, I don't know if it's similar to a home pregnancy test or not. But uh, this sort of uh, uh, has me scratching my head and saying, this isn't enough for me to, to give a green light. Now, as for playing games in ballparks, I mean, you've you got to deal with, I mean, right here, for instance, the mayor in Boston has shut down everything until Labor Day. No Fourth of July fireworks, no congregations, uh, celebrations, no parades, nothing. So if that's shut down, how can they play a baseball game at Fenway Park? They can't. So there's a lot of hurdles that have to be uh, le- le- leaped over the, the state government, city government, uh, the medical community. I think we ought to make Dr. Fauci the commissioner of all four major sports right now <laughs> because he is the most trusted guy in America right now. Yes, and when he true. says it's time to can play baseball, we go play baseball. And he says we can play basketball, we go forth. He has to give the green light in all four sports. That's, that would be my vote. Guys, I, I remain very interested in the antibody testing specifically and what it may mean for sports. Mike, you, you and I spoke with Happy Walters, NBA mm-hmm. agent, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. One of his clients, Marcus Smart, had coronavirus, you know, is participating in kind of all these studies now that he, you know, appears to have, have fully recovered. Um, but I do wonder if there is some potential benefit moving forward for athletes who have had this and, and, and maybe can't get sick from it again, you know, and, and maybe less so in baseball. But, you know, we just talked about UFC. If I'm a UFC fighter and I have the antibodies, maybe I'm calling Dana White and saying, listen, I'm, I'm risk-free. Yeah. You know, I, I can come in, I'll adhere to all the protocols you want me to, you can keep testing me. But, you know, I, I have the antibodies, I've had this, the science, at least from what we understand right now, seems to say that at least for a certain amount of time, you probably can't get it again. You know, I do wonder if, you know, that could trickle down to team employees as well, or referees trying to get opportunities in baseball or basketball. You know, I do wonder if as antibody testing gets wider and wider, if there's potentially some kind of real-time economic and, and opportunity benefits for players, athletes, staff members who who test that who reveal that they have had the disease and have beaten it. Well, I go back to something Mike said earlier about, you know, the UFC fighters, you know, showing up so they can get paid to, to some extent. And, you know, economics is, is one piece of it, but there's this other piece, and I, I think you're sort of alluding to this, Evan, which is this is a chance to get your shot, right? I mean, if you can essentially, even if, you know, say this is going way down the ladder, but like, even if you're sort of some young guy on the staff or young man or woman on the staff of a Major League Baseball team and you were able to, if this is such a thing, present an immunity card and basically say, hey, I know I wasn't supposed to be, you know, on the plane or on the travel team, but I want to be on the travel team. And by the way, I'm immune and this guy isn't. So give me my shot. I mean, it, it extends all across the board uh, to some extent. And you can certainly see 
situations where athletes either explicitly with their team or even, you know, maybe more subtly as themselves are able and willing to put themselves out there because they feel like this is their moment. This has been the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Eben Novi Williams, along with Jason Kelly and Mike Lynch. And we're here each and every Monday, Wednesday and Thursday, exploring the world of big money and big sports. Join us again at the end of the week. We're speaking with agent businessman Rich Kleiman. He's co-founder of 35 Ventures, a company he started with NBA star Kevin Durant. That'll be a fun conversation. It absolutely will. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio, around the world and online, wherever you get your podcasts. 